Pediatric Fever Part 2. In a previous episode, we talked about febrile neonates and infants. We relied heavily on the AAP guidelines, and the episode was extensively revised to follow those guidelines. But those guidelines stop once the baby reaches 60 days old. Ugh, seriously? Couldn't you just have extended it a little bit longer? What do we do now? But we still want to give you an approach to older infants and to young children. And so we're going to go back to that original interview with Eileen Claudius. First, we're going to talk about babies that are 60 to 90 days old. When we originally recorded this, it was specifically 57 to 90 day olds in this category. But now we're basically going to call them 60 to 90 day olds. I think it's close enough. And then we'll talk about babies that are three months to three years old. 60 to 90 day olds. The 60 to 90 day olds, or in other words, they're two months old. They're sort of tweeners. They're not little tiny babies. They're starting to be more accessible, but they're not big kids by any means. So let's talk about how to assess them and work them up. A two-month-old who is ill-appearing, you're going to do everything. So we don't really need to have a conversation about this too much since we've already extensively talked about the ill-appearing child. Doing everything means, once again, blood culture, CBC, inflammatory markers, which is going to be procalcitonin or CRP if you don't have procalcitonin available to you, a catheterized urinalysis and urine culture, a lumbar puncture, stool studies if diarrhea, chest x-ray of respiratory symptoms. And if that CSF shows pleocytosis, you're going to send it for HSV or herpes simplex as well. Then you're going to start antibiotics and admit the child. Done. Kind of easy. Scary, but easy. What about the well-appearing two-month-old or 60 to 90-day-old to be specific? Well, there's sort of a branch point in the thought process, and it starts with whether or not you think the child has bronchiolitis. If you suspect bronchiolitis, great. You're going to do supportive care for bronchiolitis. So suctioning, maybe they need some high-flow nasal cannula if they're tachypnic or in any distress. Just sort of the typical supportive care. But in addition to that, it is also recommended that if they're two months old and they look like they have bronchiolitis, you still go ahead and get a urinalysis and urine culture. And that's because there's still a significant risk for UTI in this age group, even if they have bronchiolitis. Okay, so that's the first branch point. What about the 60 to 90 day old that looks well and doesn't have signs or symptoms suggestive of bronchiolitis? Okay, so now we're talking about the well-appearing 60 to 90 day old with a fever, doesn't have bronchiolitis clinically. A good place to start with the workup here is a urinalysis and urine culture and consider doing a CBC, inflammatory markers, and a blood culture. This is also an age group who's much more likely to have had their first set of vaccinations, and that means a lot to me. They are moving kind of out of these neonatal pathogens and more into the strep pneumo, the Neisseria meningitis, the H flu. And that's fantastic because that's typically what we're vaccinating against. In America right now, you will get vaccinated at two months, and they can be given as early as six weeks for strep pneumo and for H flu. There are other countries that offer vaccines to younger infants for Neisseria meningitis. We don't typically do that in America yet, but nonetheless, it's not that common of a pathogen. So they're moving into vaccine-preventable serious bacterial infections, and we are starting to vaccinate them. They're also a little bit more awake. They're a little bit more accessible. So this is an age group that you have a lot more flexibility in. You can kind of clump them with the older kids as they get their vaccine and near the end of this age group. You can clump them with the younger kids if they're unvaccinated 
and if you're a little bit worried about them. Just keep in mind that nothing magical happens to these children at day 58 or day 61. I mean, they still get urinary tract infections. They can still get serious bacterial infections, and you have to consider the possibility of that. It's not like a a switch flips when they turn 60 days old. And if they haven't had their vaccinations, this definitely is a group that I typically don't perform lumbar punctures on routinely when they look well, but I often will send a blood culture if they haven't gotten their vaccines and had a little bit of time for that vaccine to work. Chapter 2. Three months to three-year-olds. I'm recording now, and it's okay with you that I record your voice in this conversation? Yes. First of all, how old is your baby? She's eight months old. And what's the reason for coming into the ER tonight? She had a fever of 103.1. She was very uncomfortable. She didn't want to sleep. Um, She didn't really want to hold her head up. She didn't want to do too much, nothing at all. And how long has this been going on? For three days, and but today it seemed like to get worse. So that's why we brought her in. What have you been giving her at home? I give her infants Advil, 1.25 milliliters every four hours, but it it didn't break her fever. Does she have any other medical problems? Um, no, just when she was born, she was just had to be in the NICU for five days because she had the infection in her blood. Mm-hmm. And then she had meningitis viral when she was three months old. And then when she was five months old, she had bronchiolitis. Was she born early or on time? She was born early, 36 weeks. And did she get all of her vaccines? Yes, she's up to date. What else can you tell me about what's been going on with her the last three days? Has she been throwing up? Has she been having diarrhea, a cough? No throwing up, no diarrhea, no cough, nothing. She's been fine with all that. Just She just had a fever that couldn't be broken. Her urine was really strong. And yeah, that, that's just it. So the urine had a strong smell to it? Or what, what do you mean yeah. it was strong? It had a strong smell to it, like... When I would lay next to her, I could smell it. If I was carrying her in my arms, I could smell it. How has she been doing since she got the Tylenol? She's been doing a lot better. She's sleeping now. She ate her bottle. Uh, she's been playing interacting with my mom. She's improving a lot better. We're going to come back to this case at the end of this chapter. But I think first we should talk about some of the background on what, what it is that we're actually looking for in these well-appearing febrile kids who are between three months and three years old. So again, with all of these age groups, ill-appearing, that's not who we're talking about. They're ill-appearing, they're medically fragile, you're doing a resuscitation, you're doing the full workup, consider getting a lumbar puncture and giving them antibiotics. So this is the well-appearing kid. And I think the name of the game here is to find the source of the infection. So full exam, head to toe, look for any clues on history or exam of where that infection is coming from. And if they're well-appearing and you don't find any clues on history or exam, Now we're in this category of looking for the occult infection. The occult infections that we're looking for are mainly bacteremia, urinary tract infections, and pneumonia. And let's talk about occult bacteremia first. Let's say someone got a a CBC and they have an elevated white blood cell count. Is that reliable for detecting occult infection? You know... It's not terribly reliable, and I don't know that it's terribly helpful just to kind of go through the whole historic perspective on this, right? We started giving the H-influenza vaccine. Kids were having terrible, terrible complications from haemophilus influenza. We've managed to vaccinate very effectively against that. And then we started vaccinating against strep pneumonia, and we've gone through a few iterations of that vaccine. At the moment, we're on, I believe, PCV13, and it's been pretty effective. 
we've managed to reduce the risk of occult bacteremia to the point that it is now between 0.05% and 0.36% of febrile kids are going to have occult bacteremia. So very, very low percent. We've reduced the risk of invasive pneumococcal disease by almost 80%. And most of this data is from the last iteration of the pneumococcus vaccine. So it's only getting better and better. So when you looked 20, 30 years ago at a child's CBC, and you saw a white count of greater than 15,000, there was a 10% chance that that kid had occult bacteremia. That really moves me. You tell me my kid has a 10% chance of being bacteremic. I'm going to sit up. I'm going to listen. I'm going to do something about it. Now that we've decreased pneumococcal disease so vastly, that was really the infection that was raising the white count. It's not as predictive anymore. Now you have a one and a half percent, a two percent chance that that kid's bacteremic. Not only is it a relatively negligible number, but there are risks associated with giving something like ceftriaxone. And the risks are actually now higher than the number of kids who are going to have bacteremia. Something else that's important to remember also is the vast majority of pneumococcal bacteremia gets better on its own. It was only about 10%, maybe tops 20% of kids that were going to go on and have a focal infection as a result of that pneumococcal bacteremia, go on to have meningitis or some type of soft tissue infection. And so most kids with pneumococcal bacteremia are fine anyway. So for me to go ahead and try to target that one and a half percent of kids with the elevated white count that were going to have bacteremia and then the 10% that were gonna have a complication because of it, I'm at that point really targeting a very small group of children. So I tend not to base my management on the white count. So that is bacteremia. So most kids are not going to need a blood culture in this age group if they're febrile and well-appearing. But what kids would you consider getting a blood culture in? What pushes the needle enough for you that you're going to get a blood culture in a well-appearing, febrile, three-month to three-year-old? Well, we did mention earlier medically fragile kids, but I don't know that we've really emphasized that enough. If a child has some type of an underlying medical process going on, they are going to be at higher risk for infections. And I think we really recognize that in the kids with cancer on chemotherapy. Of course, we're getting labs. Even children with intellectual disability and epilepsy, while I may not necessarily be getting blood cultures in all of them, I will have a lower threshold because these medically fragile kids are at higher risk for infections. The other group of kids to think about are, of course, the unimmunized kids. There is not a lot of literature in this age group. I will tell you that if on a test somebody asks you, you should probably draw blood in these kids looking for serious bacterial infections. And so what it really comes down to is what the numbers are. With the herd immunity that we have from all of the kids that are vaccinated, how many unvaccinated kids are going to get these infections? And the answer is at this point, we really don't know. So the more conservative approach of checking blood cultures on kids that are undervaccinated or unvaccinated is most people's practice. Whether or not that's really borne out by the numbers, we don't know. I suspect it's probably not. And what about the height of the fever? If it's you know, 38 degrees, is that less concerning than 40 degrees? It's a good point. Probably it's not terribly less concerning with bacteremia. It really can be all over the map. But I do have to say there are kids that are febrile enough that it gets me worried. So hyperpyrexia above like 41 degrees, which is something that you rarely see. I mean, I don't mean like 39. I don't mean the parents are like, oh my gosh, it was a crazy high fever. It was 101.2. I mean kids that are literally like 41 degrees plus. 
in that age group, there is a high risk of bacterial infections. And a lot of them are going to be easy to find bacterial infections, strep throat, otitis media, that sort of thing. But if I've done a great exam and I haven't found the infection, I will check blood on those kids because they do have a higher rate of bacterial infection. And I feel like the onus is on me to find it. Okay, so that's bacteremia. Think about getting blood cultures in kids who are medically fragile, not fully vaccinated, really high fevers, or anyone that you're worried about. Let's move on now to occult urinary tract infections. And there's a lot of risk factors that you could look at here to help you decide when to get a UA and who is at higher risk of having a urinary tract infection. We're looking at the American Academy of Pediatrics Practice Guideline. And let's talk about what are some of those risk factors that should raise your concern for a urinary tract infection to the point that you would get a urinalysis and culture on these kids. So this is where the height of the fever does come in. And the way that it's presented in the AAP practice guideline is it divides it between girls and boys. Girls in general are going to have a higher risk, although uncircumcised boys who are very young under three months also have a very high risk. So when you look at the girls, some of the risk factors to look for age under a year, temperature over 39, having had the fever for more than two days, not having some other source. If you look at a kid and they have a cold and that might be the source, well, that kid is going to be less likely to have a urinary tract infection than one that doesn't have any other potential source. And also being Caucasian is going to increase your risk of a urinary tract infection. I don't think we know exactly why, but we know that the non-Black population in particular, the Caucasian population has a higher rate of urinary tract infections. So all of those are going to go into my decision-making as to whether or not I need to check a urine. In terms of boys, circumcised boys, very, very low rate of urinary tract infections. I would really, really have to be compelled to check a urine on a circumcised boy, particularly one over three months of age. An uncircumcised boy, unfortunately, they're a little bit harder to risk stratify. Again, you're looking at the same risk factors. A high fever. In boys, a fever that's lasted more than a day non-Black race, no other source of infection. All of those are going to play a role in my decision-making, but for the most part, it's hard to say that an uncircumcised boy doesn't have a urinary tract infection, so I'm relatively liberal about checking urine in them. Now, I will admit this is my practice. The AAP has recommended using a clean catch specimen or a provoked urine specimen into a cup the same way that you would a bag. Use it as a screening tool, but if it's positive, repeat it with a catheterized or suprapubic specimen. I feel like I'm such a great human being if I can get a kid to pee on command when they're only three or four months old that I actually go ahead and just use that for the culture. But that's just me, and there are recommendations to do that differently. The third occult infection to talk about is pneumonia, which, okay, if the kid is tachypnic and has crackles and they're febrile and they're coughing up some gross looking junk, I am probably going to get a chest x-ray on that kid. And that's not who we're talking about. We're talking about the well-appearing immunocompetent child. I think there's a couple questions sort of in what you're asking there. And the first question is, who is likely to have pneumonia? Having an occult pneumonia is relatively rare. Most kids who have a pneumonia are going to be symptomatic. They're going to be coughing. They're going to be hacking. Having a pulse oximeter reading of 92% or less is pretty compelling for someone who may have a pneumonia, although we do know particularly in the younger kids, you certainly can have a normal oxygen saturation and have pneumonia as well. In the under 90-day group, about half of kids with pneumonia will have a normal oxygen saturation. 
So that can't be your only parameter, but it's clearly a factor. Does everyone who has pneumonia need a chest x-ray? No. If you have a very clear-cut case and you really think it's bacterial pneumonia, febrile, well-appearing, four-year-old, couple days, crackles focally on exam, you can give that kid antibiotics and send them home. The American Academy of Pediatrics has a practice parameter out there saying that kid doesn't necessarily need a chest x-ray. I would use a chest x-ray in a kid that I'm not sure. They may have pneumonia and I'm looking for it. I would use a chest x-ray in a child who I think may have a complicated pneumonia. Maybe they look a little bit worse. It's been going on a little bit longer. I'm concerned they now have an empyema. And I would use a chest x-ray in the rare situation that I'm worried that there's an occult pneumonia. A kid's had a fever for a long period of time, five, six, seven days. It's not getting better. I don't know why. A kid has a high fever, maybe above 41. I don't know why. And I'm really searching for a bacterial infection. Those are the three situations that, although I think pneumonia may not necessarily be likely, I would use a chest x-ray. And then the final question is who doesn't need a chest x-ray? And there are two groups of people that really don't need a chest x-ray. We already discussed one of them, the obvious uncomplicated pneumonia who can be discharged without it. And the second is the kid with clear-cut bronchiolitis. They get a lot of atelectasis. They very rarely get super infections. And if you get a chest X-ray, you're going to see an area of atelectasis. You're not going to know if it's an infiltrate or just collapse. You're going to end up giving unnecessary antibiotics. So if it is a clear-cut case of bronchiolitis and you don't have anything to push you to being worried that it's super infected, which is rare, don't get a chest X-ray on that kid. Okay, so let's summarize. So we went through a lot of information here, and what we're really looking for is occult infections, particularly bacteremia, urinary tract infections, and pneumonia. For bacteremia, tell me if I'm wrong, but basically what was said was get a blood culture if they're medically fragile or not fully immunized or if you're worried about the child. But most kids do not need blood cultures. Good so far? Good. So far so so far. Okay. Second was urinary tract infection. And who are we getting urinalysis and urine culture on? Well, we're going to use the risk factors put out by the American Academy of Pediatrics to help us risk stratify who has higher risk of having a UTI and therefore needs a catheterized urine. And typically we're getting catheterized urine. But remember, if the family is very against a catheterized urine, what we're worried about is false positives. So if a kid pees in a bag, well, if a kid can pee in a cup, that's great. If you can get them to pee in a cup, no matter how you do it, I don't even care you hand me the urine, we're done. But if you have them pee in a bag and it is negative, you do your urinalysis and it is negative, that is good enough. You can stop at that point. The people who need the cath are the ones who will let you do it because it's faster and easier or the ones who have a positive bag specimen because most of those positives are going to be false positives. You need to confirm that with a cath specimen. That's a great point. And then the third thing we talked about was occult pneumonia. Of course, if there's signs of respiratory distress, and you think it's not bronchiolitis, then you're going to get a chest x-ray. But in the absence of any signs of respiratory distress or hypoxia, if the kid has had a fever for five days or longer, that should raise your suspicion to go, go on the hunt. Go looking for where is the source of that infection. Now let's go back to that case that we heard at the beginning of this chapter. And then I have one more case as well. So this was a case of an eight-month-old brought in by mom. And mom mentioned on history that the urine smells funny. It smells different. So based off of that history, and I'll tell you the exam, well-appearing, nothing focal on exam, what would be the workup that you would pursue? So this is a child who had a fever of 103, around 103. 
looked well appearing on exam, and there's a question as to the urine. It's an immunized eight-month-old baby. Yes. Excellent. So obviously you're not going to ignore the mom. I have to say the majority of times that people tell me their child's urine smells funny, I don't find anything wrong in the urine. It's probably just a little concentrated because they're slightly dehydrated. But clearly you're not going to ignore the parent. In this case, I'm going to go ahead and check the urine. And again, if I can get the mom to get it out of the kid without a catheter, fantastic. If not, I'm going to encourage the parents to let me use a catheterized specimen. And I'm not going to go much further than that. Good. I'm glad to hear you say that because that's what I did. (laughs) And so I got a urinalysis. Baby had a UTI. Excellent. And looked well. So got antibiotics and was able to go home. But this was a very, very positive urinary tract infection. 840 white blood cells, 25 RBCs, protein, turbid appearing, lots of bacteria. But again, looked great. Got Tylenol, was taking PO, and went home with good follow-up with the pediatrician. Okay, let's do one more case. Could you tell me what was it that brought you to the ER today? Um, well, he woke up with a fever today, and it was uh, 101.1, and um, so I brought him in for them to check him since he has been sick since Thursday. And where did you bring him? I brought him to his doctor's that mm-hmm. he normally goes to. And what did they say? Um, they started checking him, and then they didn't like the way he was um, struggling to to breathe that he was trying too hard. They didn't like the way he was still breathing, like struggling. So they sent him here to um, for him to get x-rays done and to actually find out what was going on with him. Mm-hmm. Okay. How high was his fever? His fever um, has been as high as 104.1. And um, I believe today it was pretty high too, but not as high as that day. Does he have any medical problems? No, he doesn't. Has he been eating and drinking in the last day? No, he hasn't. He hasn't ate um, since Thursday. He hasn't ate. He, if anything, he pinches at the food, but he will not eat it. Mm-hmm. He has been um, asking for liquids, but if we give him some, it's like if we haven't gave him any because he still wants some more and more and more. Mm-hmm. Other than the cough and fever, are there other symptoms like diarrhea or vomiting? No, just uh, the coughing that made him throw up. And how old is he? He's two. Was he born full term? Yes, he was. Thank you for doing this. So now we're going to go to the resident, Dr. Danielle Holtz, who's going to tell us a physical exam. And you can also take a look at a video of what this child looks like if you look on your app or on the website. This is a two-year-old male who is having retractions, uh, subcostal and intercostal, um, as well as cough during my exam, uh, and appears ill but not toxic. His lungs sound coarse bilaterally, uh, but he's moving good air. Okay. What would you like to do? So because of his tachypnea and retractions, we're going to place him on high-flow nasal cannula and also get a chest x-ray. Eileen, you've now heard the history. You've heard some of the exam from the resident, and you've seen a video of what the the patient looks like. What What are your thoughts? What's your impression? This kid looks exhausted. I mean, he really does. I don't know that I would put this child in the well-appearing category. I think anyone looking at this kid, unless he's been out all night partying beyond what should be routine for a two-year-old, is going to need a little bit more tuning up than your average well-appearing febrile child. Certainly, we can give him some antipyretics. Fever causes tachypnea. It causes hyperpnea. So there are a lot of kids whose breathing does look concerning. 
And then you give them antipyretics and you realize they're absolutely fine once you bring that respiratory rate down and they no longer feel like they need to take these deep breaths to try to breathe off that fever. That having been said, didn't seem to happen with this guy. So before we hear the final workup on this kid, you should know that the respiratory rate is very elevated. He came in breathing about 40 to 50. Then we put him on high flow nasal cannula and he came down a little bit to the like 30s to low 40s range. What's the chest X-ray show? His chest X-ray shows an infiltrate in his left lower lobe as well as a viral pattern. Uh, so given the X-ray findings of a left lower lobe pneumonia, uh, he'll be admitted to the pediatric service and was started on amoxicillin. What are your thoughts about the workup and the outcome? I agree. I mean, this child clearly needs to be admitted. They're not taking in enough orally, and that's not a surprise because you told me I think this child was breathing 50. It's really hard to eat a full meal and breathe 50 at the same time. Not so easy. And the kid just doesn't look great. I would love to have him watched overnight. Now, most pneumonia in this age group is viral. And could this be a case of bronchiolitis with a small area of atelectasis that we're misinterpreting? Sure. But in a kid who looks like this, I'm not fooling around. Go ahead, admit them, give them the antibiotics. This is not where I am going to be saving antibiotic resistance by withholding antibiotics. It's the well-appearing child with bronchiolitis that looks fantastic that I'm not going to do that on. This kid doesn't look well, and I think that workup's very appropriate. And the outcome of this case was actually very good. So we were able to avoid intubating him despite his very increased work of breathing, and he looks just totally pooped out. But the high-flow nasal cannula, I think, really helped him to avoid intubation. He got antibiotics. He was admitted to the pediatric service, did well, and was able to be discharged a couple days later. Great. It's time for Big Stew with a little review. Thank you so much, Jess and Eileen, for that fantastic review of the workup of well-appearing children with fever from 60 days to three years. You know, this is something that really has changed over my career. When I started out, you really couldn't meet an emergency doctor who hadn't had that terrible, terrible experience of having a febrile, pretty well-appearing child discharged from the ED only to return several hours later in septic shock. And these were sometimes H flu, they were sometimes strep pneumo, but they were terrible. And the fact that we knew that that could happen really drove the practice of testing and treating. A lot of kids got a lot of tests, sometimes invasive tests, a lot of LPs were done on some of these older children, and a lot of antibiotics were administered. And not without consequence, the sheer amount of ceftriaxone that was administered invariably resulted in some bad outcomes. If you give enough of a safe drug to a lot of patients, you're going to have some Stevens-Johnson's, some allergic reactions, etc. And of course, the major factor that has shifted this paradigm really to the benefit of our patients is the advent of effective vaccinations, pediatric vaccinations. It really has changed the playing field. And my hope is that many of you will pass your whole careers without having to see one of these terrible outcomes. So the overarching difference between these children, 60 days and older, and the younger infants that we talked about in the first part, is the fact that they can be assessed more easily and they're much more likely to harbor an occult bacteremia or serious bacterial illness and look well, just much less likely. 
So the algorithms here skew away from a shotgun type of testing to a more focused testing that's appropriate to the assessment, to the history and the physical exam, which are so much more meaningful as the infants get older. The team did a great job of breaking down the types of infections that we will be looking for in this age group and how we're going to go after them. But again, the most important take-home point from this entire episode is the same as it was in part one, which is that don't let yourself go down the well-appearing febrile child pathway if the child doesn't look well. And you've seen that demonstrated in the cases that were selected to review excellent cases, but they show that point. Your assessment that the patient is not quite right, that they're a little bit sick, trumps just about everything else. And you don't want to find yourself in the middle of a well-appearing febrile child pathway when the child really doesn't appear quite well or when they're medically fragile and there's other reasons why they could get sick quickly. And so while we've seen that much more targeted and selective approach to working up the patients in this older age group, don't forget that you reserve the right to expand that out and do the full meal deal on patients that, again, don't look quite right, are unvaccinated, or have that fragility. And so with that, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of C3. I certainly did. And we will see you next time. This is Stuart Swadron. Thanks for listening.